HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Okay, Giselle, send me your address. I will send you beans. Do you remember the Jack and the Beanstalk fairy tale? Jack trades the family cow for these rare beans. Well, magic beans. And they bring him on a crazy adventure. Jack was special. He had these beans that no one else had. But back to reality. The Rancho Gordo Bean Club might not be magical, but it's exclusive. Their beans are so rare, there's a wait list to be a part of their club. A club where you get mailed beans approximately every three months. HRN staff member Joanna Garnett Raypold put herself on the waiting list almost five years ago. And then... One day during the pandemic... I received an email that I had finally been accepted into the Rancho Gordo Bean Club. And I was so excited. And I I think they might even put like a limited time on your response. Like you have to respond within X amount of days, you know, or we're going to move on to the next person. So, of course, I responded. I didn't know how much it costs. It's like, yes, I have gotten this spot. I'm taking my spot no matter what. So for the past two years, a year and a half, I have so many beans that I honestly don't even want because I like beans, but I don't like beans that much, but I can't stop because I'll never get my spot back because I know it is such an exclusive membership. And once I'm out, I'm I'm out. Like, will they ever even let me back in? I don't know. So I have um, kind of like a secret place in a pantry that like I don't even want my family to see because it's embarrassing how many beans we have. But ultimately, I will never leave the bean club. The bean variety is appealing from Mexican oregano to black caviar lentils. I was so fascinated by all of this. I went on the Rancho Gordo bean website and of course the beans are out of stock. But did I also sign up to be on their waiting list? Yes. As you just heard from Giselle and Joanna, the Rancho Gordo Bean Club quickly became the status membership for U.S. gastronomes. In addition to the official Rancho Gordo Bean Club members-only Facebook group, 
adoring fans have created unofficial groups, thousands of members strong, to share tips and recipes and connect with fellow bean lovers. But a cult-like status doesn't equal an actual cult. So where's the line between what's trendy and what's culty? Exclusivity and inclusion can influence our relationships with food and even create fanatic communities around certain food brands. We take a hard look at that question and how it plays out in our consumption today. Plus, we discover some surprising connections between familiar food brands and fringe religious groups and far-fetched beliefs about health, wellness, and nutrition. Come along for a ride filled with bizarre twists and turns and some challenging questions about our own affiliations to food. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Nora Peachin kicks off our investigation by coming to terms with what constitutes a cult. So... What exactly is a food cult? When I hear cult, I'm imagining religious fanatics. Think satanic rituals and cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. But the term cult seems to have taken on a broader meaning when it comes to food. I decided to ask three experts, academics in the fields of psychology, behavioral and social sciences, culture and communication, to define food cults for me and explain just what's so alluring about them. So my name is Lee Ann Chafee. I'm an associate teaching professor at the University of Washington, Tacoma. My area of scholarship focuses on food decision-making. So the way that psychology informs the decisions we make on a moment-to-moment basis, as well as more broadly, our judgments and attitudes about food. Leanne uses the term food cults interchangeably with fad diets. For her, a food cult is a set of beliefs around nutrition and eating based on pseudoscience, and often promoted by folks looking to profit off of certain food products. It's not to say that there's not aspects of nutrition that are studied empirically, but proprietors of fad diets make these vague claims that we cannot verify, and specifically rely on a lot of anecdotes, uh, personal testimonies of success stories. These diet trends prey on people's anxieties surrounding healthy eating. If you go to a grocery store, there's so much nutritional information, many, many decisions to make. And we know that these decisions have implication for our health and well-being and how we feel each day. And so um, a food cult or a fad diet can help to quell those anxieties. Beyond spreading pseudoscientific nutrition advice, food cults that tout positive health outcomes also tend to lean into extremely limited understandings of well-being, according to Dr. Tina Sicca a reader in technical science and intersectional justice at the University of Newcastle in the UK. It's this very, you know, Western normative idea of health where, you know, you're not looking at at social determinants, you're not looking at wellness in a robust and capacious way that it's very narrowly defined. Basically uh, asserting that health status is a product of individual choice and that, you know, if you are... In ill health, it's because, um, you know, you have chosen bad habits that, you know, you can make these changes, which doesn't look at the social determinants of health, like poverty, like access, like, 
you know, access to healthy food, access to health care, education, issues around racism and gender based violence and, and all of those things that contribute to health isn't discussed. While followers' anxieties about food choice or their own health may be eased, taking part in a food cult can have real consequences. Here's Leanne again. Wasting time and economic resources is absolutely one risk. And I think importantly, though, the other risk is the adherence, blind adherence to these these ideas, these fad diets and food cults means that folks lose some of their ability to engage in like a skeptical and critical thinking. Dr. Carlita Green, Dean of Behavioral, Social Sciences and Global Learning at Bunker Hill Community College in Boston, also cites a lack of independent critical thinking as a key element in food cults. Carlita has specifically researched and written on the glorification of excess and gluttony, analyzing corporate promotions like Olive Garden's never-ending pasta bowl and Burger King's heart attack grill that encourage overconsumption. That's how a lot of our rhetoric functions today. It often is linked to pleasure and desire and, you know, these kinds of appeals, particularly with food and taste. And it moves us to kind of go along and go with the flow without necessarily considering or and or thinking about like what actually is happening here. Like what are we actually being encouraged to do? Even when the results of partaking in a food fad may be poor health, wasting of time or of money, the sense of belonging or social validation that can emerge from food cults compels people to stick with them. This is especially significant as our food choices become one of the main ways in which we identify ourselves and establish our place in the world, Carlita says. Following certain food trends can be a way not only to find a sense of self and of community, but also to demarcate social status or to gain more health capital, as Tina puts it. You consume different foods and you're part of these cultures and these subcultures and that can manifest in tangible gains, even you know, in terms of income. There are statistics, you know, around particularly women who have a kind of normative beauty or thinness where they tend to make more money than women who might identify as fat. I think it's also inhabiting those spaces as well. So moving in those spaces, because you do need a certain amount of income to purchase the products. So it leads to a kind of social stratification or it can feed into it. Some food cults serve to widen socioeconomic divides, while others, such as those researched by Carl Nita, forward corporate interest at the sake of our health. From bowls of endless pasta to acai bowls, the term food cult ultimately encompasses all sorts of dietary and food trends with varying outcomes that have accrued cult-like followings. What they all have in common is their ability to gain followers' loyalty to a point of blind, unquestioning devotion. And this is where the danger lies. These days, supermarkets are packed with specialty health foods, which draw us in with cute, colorful packaging and enticing benefits for our well-being. For some, those brands become staples. HRN's Anna Canny tells us about the peculiar origin story behind one product in her own cabinet. On sleepless nights, I often find myself headed to the cupboard in search of a sleepy bear in a red nightcap. He sits dozing in a comfy armchair in front of the fireplace. If he sounds familiar, that's because he's the face of one of North America's best-selling herbal teas, 
Sleepy Time Tea by Celestial Seasonings. Fifty years ago, when the company was founded, this iconic bear was also associated with occults. But he's left that far behind him, and these days, he's a trusted companion in my nighttime routine. On the surface, the two men who launched Celestial Seasonings were just a couple of hippies. Most Eagle and John Hay and um, some of their other friends were kind of these flower children in Colorado. This was, you know, in the 70s. And um, when you go to the actual headquarters, you watch a really fun, beautiful video of hippies frolicking in the fields. And so that's kind of the, um, the company folklore about how it got started. That's food writer Megan Giller. She started looking into the company after visiting their headquarters last year. Celestial Seasonings was one of the first brands to popularize herbal tea. That is, tea that's not made from a tea plant. Siegel and Hay spent their days gathering things like spearmint and lemongrass in the sunshine. But at night, they were up to something more bizarre. It turns out that founders Mo Siegel and John Hay weren't just hippies. They were followers of a cultish New Age Bible, the Urantia Book. It just kind of gets crazier and crazier as you read it. Um, and it's very intricate and complicated. Um, for example, there's a little piece of kind of what they call the deity in each of us, and it's called a thought adjuster. And there's, you know, all the earth is Urantia, and it's number 606 in a planetary group called Satania, and the headquarters of that is called Jerusalem. So there's all these kind of like intricate details that get, you know, more and more bizarre as you read on. And Urantia wasn't just a personal belief. Mo Siegel has said that it directly motivated the founding of the company. Yvrancha has a dark side, too. Theories which promote racism and eugenics, and theories which inspired Mo Siegel's own conception of health. He wrote, Illness and disease result from evil and cause suffering. Unfortunately, several factors hinder progress toward the development of a disease-free world. The laws of genetics are immutable and from the physical cornerstone of evolution. At the present time, mankind loses about as much progress as it makes by ignoring eugenics. So he is very specifically pro-eugenics. Both founders retired years ago. The brand is now owned by a larger health food company, which has no cult associations. But this strange origin story has definitely made me reflect on what health really means when it comes to specialty foods. There is this assumption that um, health food brands are the brands that we buy from hold the same values that we do, but that's not necessarily true. But Celestial Seasonings was a pioneer in the natural health food space, a movement in food which has grown steadily. So for me, each cup of tea is a reminder of the peculiar and sometimes dangerous intersections of religion, health and wellness, and food. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow-cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tejona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best-tasting, highest-quality tequila possible. 
Their tequilas have received over 20 blind tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their reposado is soft and balanced with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. I spent seven years working in the restaurant and bar industry in front of house and back of house. And I just feel like Heritage Radio Network's content helps me feel so well connected to the other creators and chefs and restaurateurs and all the amazing things that they're doing. I still feel like I get to be a part of the kind of in team. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Most people are curious where their food comes from, but rarely do you hear people question what their food was made for. Autumn Jemison unearths the creation story of a popular cereal. Have you ever wondered what cornflakes would taste like without sugar? Or why they only hold a certain hint of sweetness? This cereal was created to be bland. Why? To stop people from putting their hand down their pants? Yes, you heard that right. The thought of people seducing themselves for their own pleasure struck a nerve in scientist John Harvey Kellogg. Kellogg was a minister who believed that all forms of sexual activity were heinous and sinful and cereal was going to help solve that problem. So while he recognized that sex was necessary for procreation, he was extremely against masturbation because obviously that's not required for procreation and self-abuse, as he called it, uh, was unhealthy. He also believed that bland foods would cool the passion. And that was, uh, in fact, part of the uh, reason that he developed uh, cereals, because uh, cereals were very bland. He would not allow sugar to be added to cereals because he thought that that would make it, uh, you know, more tasty. I spoke with Joe Swarks, director of McGill University Office for Science and Society in Quebec, Canada, to find out if this theory is factual or if Kellogg was just a zealous minister who happened to be a scientist. There was no no, no such experiment. Uh, it was uh, just the belief that, that if something is spicy or flavorful, it, it uh, inflames the passion. There's absolutely no evidence for that. The only experiments that they carried out was how to make foods that people should eat that were bland, but never experimented with what the physiological effects were. However, Kellogg's beliefs turned to actions, which at their most extreme included genital mutilation on men and women. His views on this were really 
quite extreme. Medical science was very primitive in those days. And of course, people suffer from all kinds of illnesses. And when you are ill and there's no real treatment for it, you'll clutch at whatever straw. And if someone suggests to you that, that you're ill because, you know, you've indulged in sex too much and you can be cured of this, well, there are people who will go for it. People were prone to accept just about anything as long as they thought that, that whoever they were getting advice from was some sort of authoritarian figure. In addition to the lack of technology in the medical field, many people depended on their faith to guide them in health matters. Although he was trying to reform diets through a scientific lens, Kellogg surrounded his research around the life he always knew. He was uh, raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, which already meant that he was uh, tuned into a vegetarian diet and a bland diet because that is what the Adventists believed in. Ellen White, who was the leader of the Adventist movement, uh, actually sent him to medical school. And he got a, a medical degree, a proper medical degree, and became head physician at the sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. The Seventh-day Adventists uphold the Bible to the utmost prestige following the fundamental values, including abstinence until marriage. Kellogg created a cereal to seek a cure for decreasing sexual desires, even if it was amongst themselves. He was so passionate about his untested theory to the point where he disowned his own brother, Will Kellogg, for going behind his back and manufacturing cornflakes with sugar on them. John Kellogg had narrow and unsubstantiated views on sexual health, but believe it or not, some of his other claims weren't too far off. He was really a mixed bag because in some ways he was ahead of his time in terms of his emphasis on, on microbes in the gut. He promoted yogurt uh, to rebalance the bacteria in the gut. And today, you know, everyone is talking about probiotics. Uh, he was right about vegetarian diets being healthy and excessive meat eating not, not being healthy. Although Dr. Kellogg was a nut on a lot of things, he was a pioneer for creating something that's versatile, fast, easy, and yummy. As you munch away on your slightly sweet cornflakes, just be thankful that Kellogg's parents had two sons and not one. So far, our stories have been from the past. But what food cults are out there today? Are you part of one? Sophie Talka of Burko looks at the strong ties to stores we all shop in. Grocery stores. They are symbols of American abundance. But they also have transformed into markers of identity. You can represent that you are worldly, health-conscious, or environmentally minded through the grocery bag you carry on your shoulder. Grocery chains such as HEB, Trader Joe's, and Wegmans have developed cult-like followings with fan bases akin to sports teams. I mean, first of all, the grocery store is like this modern miracle of a place. So it's like kind of understandable that you could become obsessed with it. It's uh, at your fingertips. You have more options and choices than the greatest kings and pharaohs and emperors in the history of the world. I'll just say, I do think Trader Joe's is overhyped and please don't give me too much hate, but I'm just not trying to wait in hella long lines all the way down the block 
to not be able to find most things that I need. I don't get the fandom around Aldi's. I went to the one at Broadway Plaza in the Bronx when they first opened, and I was so disappointed to see that the majority of their products were A, generic, and B, prepackaged. I don't live in Texas anymore, but I still love H-E-B. I've had blissful dreams where I'm back shopping at H-E-B. That's how much I love this grocery store. Freshly made tortillas, cooking demos, local food, patio furniture, clothes. They have everything. Plus, their AC is icy cold in the summer, which is blissful when you're coming in from the Texas heat. I don't know about you, but after a long day, nothing sounds more relaxing to me than hearing the sweet sound of the animatronics on the Disneyland-like adventure that is Stu Leonard's. No, I'm just kidding. Well, maybe. We all have our grocery store preferences, but how did they become a part of our communal and personal identities? What does our obsession with grocery stores reveal about American society? Today I'm speaking with Benjamin Lore, author of The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. He spent five years speaking with people across the industry, from grocery store employees to truckers. You know, a, a lot of our identity is wrapped up in the choices that we make. And I think that there's, you know, something very obvious about this. And, and the retail guys I would talk to would always talk about how retail is a reflection of society and the choices that we're making. Food is this the kind of perfect vehicle for our consumptive choices that, you know, you're, everyone's forced into it. You never feel gaudy and materialistic because it's a basic need, but it captures the entire range uh, of the, the people can express themselves from extremely virtuous to caring for others to the unique colon biota that they can only express to, um, the, you know, the fact that they have an ancestry. Grocery stores intentionally appeal to certain demographics and cultivate these immense and passionate fan bases. Joe of Trader Joe's was one of the first, though, to sell an identity through a grocery store. At a certain point, it definitely became Joe's intention to create a cult-like following. I don't think he would have framed it as a cult, so to speak, but he was extremely aware of the demographics of a Trader Joe's consumer. The first Trader Joe's opens in Pasadena. It's a college town. There's a number of universities around it. Joe chose that location after driving around. This is in the the early 60s at driving around with his family, counting like the number of boats in people's front yards, the different types of cars that they would have, um, just looking for any signifiers of like the, the kind of consumer that he wanted. We, we're going to create lots of niches. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to market food like it's wine with different vintages, but it's going to be for the traveling man. It's going to be for the person who's who, who, who grew up eating kind of standard American fare, but maybe had a trip overseas and that woke them up to a whole new whole new vocabulary around eating and who went to college and, and learned some things and wants to eat in a manner that expresses that. And so. He was always after that in, in, in creating a store designed for that consumer. Grocery stores becoming a mode of self-expression may seem relatively harmless and even fun. 
but behind the strategic packaging, low costs, and labels of fair trade is a corrupt supply chain and a broken system. I do think that grocery store can be thought of as like a, a metaphor for American hegemony and uh, American um, power uh, overseas and, and the way we've outsourced things and the way, um, you know, we we task other people for to supply this like vision of abundance for us. You know, in many ways, though, the grocery store is trapped uh, in this race to the bottom where the price comparison shopping that we do at checkout, and and everyone does this, uh, whether you like it or not, um, is mirrored throughout the system. So the grocers are price comparison shopping, the manufacturers are price comparison shopping, and it gets compounded all the way down the line so that margins are so thin at every level. And, and I guess I want people to realize that behind that, first you have to wake up to the fact that there's this miracle happening. And second, you have to wake up to the behind that miracle. There's just an immense amount of power that's going to to fuel it. This competition for cultural meaning is exacerbating the inequities in the industry. The continuous demand for lower prices and quicker service has a cost. Customers may believe that they're being eco-friendly or supporting fair labor practices as they proudly declare themselves shoppers of a beloved grocery brand. But at the bottom of this industry are truckers risking their lives for low wages, inhumane working conditions for farm workers, and men being enslaved on fishing boats in Asia to cheapen the cost of seafood. The answers that we do have uh, come from empowering workers, um, you know, strengthening unions. Um, and right now we're in a place where those have been kind of systematically stripped down for, for many years. And so there's a lot of work to be done to strengthen them. In the end, where's this chase for convenience and efficiency taking us? These inequities are a part of a larger broken system. And the majority of the responsibility does not fall on the individual customer. But what could we do if we channeled the same energy we put into supporting our favorite grocery stores into ensuring that these grocery stores really stand behind our values? How as consumers can we push our grocery stores to be better? That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about this week's guests and topics in our show notes. Special thanks this week to Giselle Medina, Nora Peachin, Anna Canny, Autumn Jemison, Sophie Talkov-Burko, and Alex Tran. Meet in 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, Write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>